Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which, with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all. And in you all. In the first three chapters, Paul wrote to the Ephesians concerning our heavenly possessions in Christ. Paul gave praise for our redemption, a prayer for God's revelation. Paul described our position in Christ and then prayed that we would realize, that we would grasp. All that God has done for us in Christ. We've been made alive with Christ. We've been shown God's mercy, not wrath. We can stand for Christ in truth. We're free to love and serve and sit with Christ. He contrasted that with the fact that we're no longer enslaved to Satan. We've been raised up with Christ to glory. No longer needing to follow our former evil thoughts and desires. Desires. The first three chapters focused on doctrine. The last three will focus on duty. The first three on belief. The last three on behavior. The first three on your riches. The last three he's going to share with you how you get to spend your riches. We're to live in unity. In the church, we're to demonstrate holiness in our life. Paul concludes this epistle with a description of our responsibilities at home and at work, and then describe the believer's conduct in the midst of conflict. Clearly, he focuses on belief because belief is important. But what you believe will eventually manifest itself in what you really do, how you really think, how you really pray, how you really live. Do you remember how he ended chapter 3? Paul prayed that the Ephesian believer would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man in verse 16 of chapter 3. The power of the Holy Spirit purifies our hearts so that Jesus will feel at home in our heart in verse 17. When Jesus is at home in our hearts, we experience overwhelming love in verse 19. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can live pure lives, loving lives, receiving power for service in verses 20 and 21. And because God has done so much for us, Paul pleads for Christians to live in purity, to live in unity. Again, Paul wants to take the wealth that we have in Christ and now give you permission to spend it in the way that you live. So the theological realities of the first three chapters are now to become practical realities 
in the last three chapters. And what is the first practical reality? The one we struggle with the most. I need you to get along with each other. It's so much easier to focus on prophecy and go to conferences and learn stuff. No, I need you to get along with each other. Have you ever asked the question why there are so many church splits? Why there are so many church breakups? I don't have a lot of empirical data to support this, but I suspect that most churches don't break up because of doctrinal matters, but because at heart, human beings are troublemakers rather than peacemakers. For some reason, we just can't seem to get along because we feel compelled to argue over the color of the carpet or even if we have carpet, the setting of the lights, whether we're supposed to sit down and worship or stand up. Paul gives us some answers. He says if we walk worthy, if we can love in unity, Because Jesus has created us to be one new man, one body, Jew and Gentile, male and female, free and slave, united in Christ. John Stott writes, Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, even a new humanity being created, unquote, after praising and preaching and praying. Again, Paul makes an appeal. He says, I'm begging you to walk worthy in verse one. And then he describes the character of those who walk worthy in verse 2. And then he appeals to his reader to make a commitment to unity in verse 3. And finally, Paul describes the components or the elements or the essentials that make unity possible in verses 4 through 6. And so it begins with the command to walk worthy. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's interesting, right off the bat, Paul gives a gentle reminder of his own imprisonment. He doesn't go into length. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I've been falsely charged. I've been falsely imprisoned. I've been falsely accused. And he doesn't recount all of the events in the book of Acts. He doesn't talk about the shipwreck. He doesn't talk about the pain. He doesn't talk about the suffering. He doesn't talk about the isolation. Paul submits to Roman imprisonment for Christ's sake. He is willing to pay the price for walking worthy. You know, in high school, I had a PE coach who became somewhat famous back in the day, but he always ran with us and he always exercised with us. And he basically said, I'll never ask you to do anything that I myself am unwilling to do. And it's interesting to me that when you join a gym or you join a health club or you join a golf club, There are usually rules that govern membership behavior. There's some minimum standard in which you have to conduct yourself 
in community, in relationship. And some people want the security and the blessings that come with church membership, but they don't want the responsibilities of church participation. Are you willing to conform, not to the standards of the church, but to the guidelines of the gospel? Do you enjoy the promises of God's word, but reject the commands of God's word? And the word beseech is what you think it is. It means to beg. It means to plead. It doesn't, he, note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm the apostle. I've written one third of the New Testament. I hear from God. I have revelations from God. If anyone should listen to what I have to say, I think I've earned my credentials. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I demand that you do this, or I command that you do this. He begs them. He doesn't use his apostolic position or authority, or even his own incarceration as a cry for the believer to walk worthy of the calling with which they are called. The word beseech, by the way, in the original language is intense and emotional. Paul's plea doesn't benefit Paul. Notice his plea, he's, he doesn't say, I'm begging you to give me money. I'm begging you to come and visit me. I'm begging you to feel sorry for me. I'm begging for you to send me something. Paul's plea doesn't benefit Paul, but rather the person for whom the plea is intended. In context, it's the Ephesian believers, but in time and space, it's you and me. He's pleading. His call cries through the centuries. Paul isn't giving a divine suggestion. He's, he's issuing a divine standard. He's saying, walk worthy. So when a pastor begs you to obey the Lord Jesus... When a church leader asks you, please, would you please think about doing what the Bible says, they risk rejection and even persecution because there are people who will say, how, how dare you ask me to do something? But you'll remember when Paul says, I want you to obey the Lord. I want you to follow me as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not inviting you to do something that he himself is unwilling to do. A pastor who begs you to obey the Lord, like I said, is risking it all. After repeated attempts to convince a person to repent of their sin, I read the story of of. Of a, of a person who basically was asked to leave the church. They tried, they pleaded, they begged this person to obey the Lord. And, the, and after repeated attempts to convince them, they finally had to ask him to leave and the unrepentant sinner sued the church and won. 
The person sued the church for alienation of affection and won. And surveys seem to indicate that the biggest source of discouragement and disappointment for the pastor comes from the individuals who just simply refuse to obey the Lord in their lives. Paul loves the people and cares for them. He reminds us that we can't afford to be detached or, or disinterested in what goes on in the lives of the saints. Loving concern is costly. But a pastor worthy of the office, leaders worthy of their calling, people who are called by God to walk with Jesus, who name the name of the Savior, they're asked to walk worthy of the call and calling. And worthy, by the way, is an interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word axios. You may not know that word, but we have an English cognate that comes from that word. It's called an axiom. An axiom is a, is a statement or a saying which is known to be true. But the word in the original language meant balance or equivalence. In the ancient world, it was used to describe scales, and you would put a weight on one side, and then you would put a weight on the other, and then these weights would be given equal distribution. So walking worthy doesn't mean that you merit salvation or that you have to walk in such a way to deserve your salvation or to deserve God's grace or, or, or to deserve God's salvation or forgiveness. Paul isn't asking us to forget what we learned in the first three chapters. He isn't saying, oh, by the way, I remember I told you that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, but not really. You have, to, you have to perform. You have to live up to the standards. He's not saying that at all. Salvation remains the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 18, 2 and 19. We don't forget that we're saved by grace. We don't forget that we're kept by grace. We don't all of a sudden abandon grace and say, oh, now we get to earn our salvation. That's not what he's saying. What is equal on one side should be equal on the other. Your salvation gives evidence of your sanctification. Paul is talking about reciprocity. Look what the Lord Jesus has done for you. Won't you do something for him? What is equal on one side should be equal on the other. Look at all that Jesus has done for you. All that Christ has done for you on the inside. But because he's done all of this for you on the inside, you're now free to live it out on the outside. All that Christ has done for you on the inside can now become visible to others on the outside. And so, again, the calling is a reference to God's work in Christ. And so in verse 4, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. This calling, again, is the reference of God's work in Christ that results in your salvation. I'm going to suggest to you that this isn't a specific call if you're called to be a pastor or a teacher or this or that. This has more of an emphasis on you are called 
by God in Christ to be saved because you've believed the gospel. You believed the work of Christ in redeeming you and reconciling you. Remember in Romans 8, 28, where Paul says, and we know that God is causing all things to work together for your good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. This is a calling, and his purpose in calling you is to redeem you and reconcile you so that you can be have friendship and fellowship with him and useful in the kingdom. It's God who's called you. Jesus who chose you. Our choosing him is meaningless unless he first chose us. Remember what he told his own disciples? You didn't choose me, but I chose you. So many people ask me the question, well, how can I know if God has chosen me? Choose him. Then you'll know that he chose you. The illustration I, I use among husbands and wives, I go, who chose who? Did your husband choose you or did you choose him? And she usually says, I ran just fast enough so that he could catch me. <laughs> there seems to be some sort of dynamic that takes place that, that defies definition. The Lord wasn't simply to content to supply the means of salvation. He seeks and then saves the lost. He changes us from the inside. He redeems us. He transforms us. He empowers us. The Lord has gone out of his way to choose you, to adopt you, to redeem you, to empower you. And so Paul says, now it's time to walk worthy of that calling, it's time for you to behave like a person who's really saved. And so he talks about the character of those who walk worthy. And this single verse is so rich that I want to just give it a little attention. Look what he says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering Bearing with one another in love. So how are we to walk worthy? In that single sentence, Paul gives five characteristics of the person who walks worthy. Follow me. Look what he says. With all lowliness. That's number one. The word lowliness here means humility. And by the way, the Greek and the Roman people would rarely use this word to describe themselves. This character and state of mind was used in the ancient world to describe the mind of a slave. The average Greek or the average Roman citizen or the average freeborn person would under the, only the, under the most rare of circumstances would use this to describe themselves. In the ancient world as well as the modern world, humility wasn't viewed as an asset. It wasn't seen as something good. It's the very long Greek word, tap a noth ros frine. It's, it's, a, it's a compound word that is built on a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. The word literally means the lowliness of mind. 
And, and so the, the idea is in the lowliness of mind or the humility in the mind or in the modesty of mind. In the, in the ancient world, it was a word that was used to describe a mental way of thinking that was modest and selfless. So in the ancient world, it was interpreted to mean the mind of a slave or the thoughts that a slave might think about himself or, or herself. Sometimes we can understand a word by, by the opposite word, word. In this instant, the opposite of this word is pride. And Paul will later write in another place, he'll say, you ought not to think more highly of yourself or we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So, so what, is he, he, what is he saying? In this instant, this is the kind of pride, not in the evil, self-exalting kind of sense, this might be used in the modern sense of what you and I might call a healthy self-regard or a healthy self-esteem. And Paul is basically saying, no, I'm going to suggest that you do something different. It's lowliness, humility. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because this is an invitation to see yourself the way God sees you. And how does God see you? He sees you as a needy person who needs him. He sees your sin as a real problem, but he sees also that he is the solution to that problem. It, it, this is an invitation to see ourselves the way God sees us in relationship to the revelation that's given in the Bible about our true condition. We're needy. We're sinners. We are in need of a Savior. We're in desperate circumstances. And if you have ever been in desperate circumstances, if you've ever been in desperate circumstances where it looked dark and it looked difficult and it looked overwhelming physically, financially, relationally, your world was about to fall, fall apart, then all of a sudden you begin to have a little bit of an insight into what he's talking about. The Bible says that Jesus humbled himself. Remember what Paul has already said. He earlier described the condition of the Gentiles. They're without God. They're without hope. They have been separated from the covenant. So when the Bible says that Jesus humbles himself, takes on a servant, Jesus says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to serve as a ransom for many in Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45. How can we walk worthy? How can we walk in unity? We have to take the form of a servant. And we're fine with that until someone actually treats us like a servant. Okay, I'll be a servant. And then someone says, well, serve me. And something rubs us the wrong way. What do you think I am, a doormat? Do you think I'm your slave? And Jesus says, I've come to serve you. Humility, and listen carefully, 
humility is essential for the unity that he's going to be talking about. Because at the heart of all division, at the heart of all discord, at the heart of all church splits and relational difficulties is pride. We act in pride when we maneuver ourselves for the respect of others. We're acting in pride when we insist that others recognize us, recognize us for who we are, recognize us for our gifts and callings. Think for a moment, pride and self-promotion and arrogance, these are the ingredients of disunity. Someone has said that pride turned angels into devils. Humility turns men into beings fit for heaven. Andrew Murray wrote, quote, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It's to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I'm blamed or despised. It has... it." it it is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at rest as in a deep sea of calmness and all around me is a sea of trouble, unquote. Dr. F.B. Meyer, who was a contemporary of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, wrote to a friend a few weeks before his death. He wrote, quote, I'm now 82. And I live in a nursing home. I want to tell you what the Spirit of God has been showing me lately. That I've acquired a reputation for sanctity by my books. This may grow upon me. It makes me want to creep into heaven unnoticed. Unquote. It's his way of saying all of the things that I wrote. And all of the spirituality and lowliness of mind that my writing seems to reflect. It was his way of coming to grips with, with the fact that there's something. He knows the truth about himself. He knows about the pride and the arrogance and the deceit that's inside of his heart. And he says, it makes me afraid to walk into heaven. So, hey, look, it's F.B. Meyer. Hey, I went to your church. Hey, I read your books. But now in heaven, the truth is known. No wonder Jesus is the only person, the only person who can say, take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly, same word, humble in heart. And you will find rest, peace for your souls, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. If pride is the root of all sin, then humility is the foundation for every virtue. In order to walk worthy, in order to have peace, in order to be a peacemaker, you're going to have to cultivate humility in your thinking and life. But humility is elusive. I heard the story of a man who was voted by his church the most humble man in the church, and they gave him a ribbon, and then they took it away because he wore it every single day. The moment we think we have it, 
it disappears. And then he says, gentleness, that's number two. And I want you to understand the text and what's being built here. Humility produces gentleness. The, the Greek word is proutes. Someone has defined this as meekness or strength under control. Meekness or gentleness is the sign that humility is present. You can't have one without the other. Humility will produce meekness. Pride and meekness are mutually exclusive. So most people think of gentleness as, as being timid or, or lacking courage, but that's way far from the biblical meaning of the word. The gentle person is the person who has his or her spirit under control. Again, like many words, we can sometimes receive insight from its opposite. Here, the opposite of this word is vindictive, vengeful. I would even go so far as to say wild at heart. Do you want to know why? Because this word, proutus, was used by the ancients to describe the process of taming a wild animal. So if you had a wild horse and then you broke that horse... And you made the horse useful. Or if you had another animal that you would tame. That's the idea of this word. And so the animal retains all of its strength. But now its strength, like a horse, can be controlled. A, a, a horse is a beautiful animal. It's an amazing animal. It's a strong animal. But can you imagine, once the horse is tamed, now it's disciplined and it can run in the right direction. And you'll remember, this is the word that Jesus describes himself. He is humble and gentle. And so a person who's both humble and gentle is like a soothing breeze or like a, a medicinal ointment that cools the flame of fire that has made you sick. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember that there was this fierce attempt by Peter to defend him. And you'll remember that Jesus said to, to Peter, put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he said to Peter, don't you understand that I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal? And if this was a war and I wanted to win the war, I have the capability of protecting myself. You don't have to protect Jesus. Jesus is capable of protecting himself. Lloyd-Jones makes this reference, quote, to be meek means you have... Finished with yourself altogether, unquote. Another characteristic of the meek, they respond to the correction of the word of God. They respond when they hear the word of God and the expectation that's given in the word of God. They say to themselves, this is what I want for myself. They respond to the word of God. The meek are willing to suffer the consequences of being obedient to the word of God. And so we have the next thing is long-suffering. And this word long-suffering is patience. The word literally means long 
tempered. John MacArthur writes, quote, a patient person endures negative circumstances and never gives in to them, unquote, James 5.10. And so the worst possible prayer you could ever pray is to say, Lord, make me more patient. Because the moment that you pray that prayer, the Lord is going to give you opportunities for humility and for meekness. And again, I want you to see the connection in the chain. Because humility gives birth to meekness, and meekness gives birth to patience. It's interesting, in James 5.10, James writes, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. In that passage of scripture, I think about the prophet Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to the ministry. God gave Jeremiah a message. In this church and from this pulpit, I preached 51 chapters of Jeremiah as he spoke about judgment. And guess what? God gave him a message. God said, Jeremiah, I want you to talk about the judgment that's going to come. And by the way, Jeremiah, no one's going to believe you. No one's going to respond to you. No one's going to appreciate you. They're not going to believe your message. The Lord told Jeremiah, here's what you can expect in your ministry. You're going to be hated, scorned, ridiculed. And then on top of everything else, you're going to be persecuted. Can you imagine if the Lord says, I'm calling you to a ministry. I'm calling you to a ministry where nobody ever gets saved. And you go, is there a second choice? Can I, is there another ministry that I could be called to? But do you know what Jeremiah does? He serves the Lord faithfully. He patiently endures to the end of his life. And in the book of Lamentations, when he is surrounded by Jerusalem that has been burnt to the ground, he says that the Lord will lift him up and that the Lord would make good that his promises. Why would God call a person to a ministry of failure? And you might think, well, that's not for me. I don't want any part of a ministry of failure. Here's what I would say. Whatever it is that God's called you to do, you can take that up with the Lord. But Paul was willing to endure prison and hardship and affliction and ridicule and persecution. And then he says, I'm still going to serve the Lord. I think of the story of H.M. Stanley. He went to Africa in 1871 to find and report on the very famous David Livingston. And some of you are familiar with the story. Livingston never spoke to Stanley about spiritual matters. But Stanley wrote in his journal, quote, When I saw that unwearied patience that unflagging zeal, and those enlightened sons of Africa, I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke one word, unquote. He literally 
sees the transformation of a life lived in purity and humility and gentleness before the Lord. The patient saint accepts the plan of God in everything. Now again, do the math. Humility, giving birth to meekness, giving birth to patience, well, what if what God wants me to do is dangerous? What if it's difficult? What if it's hard? Can I ask you a question? Do you think that the ministry of Jesus was sometimes difficult? And do you think it was sometimes dangerous? Jesus left paradise and glory and riches. He left heaven to be spat upon, to be beaten to be stripped, to be tortured, to be crucified. And by the way, how many times do you suppose he complained? If you said never, you would be right. If you said never, he would, you would be right. How many times did Jesus return evil for evil? Never. And this is the problem with the text. It's not the text that's the problem. It's, the, it's me, I'm the problem. Because now I look at the text and I go, oh, so the Lord wants me to be humble. The Lord wants me to be gentle. The Lord wants me to be patient. But humility will produce gentleness, which will produce patience. And again, the moment, the moment, the moment that you say, I want this for myself, God's going to give you every opportunity to have it. And look what he says, bearing with one another in love. That's four. Humility gives birth to gentleness, which gives birth to patience, which gives birth to bearing with one another in love. You know what I think is the best translation of this? Putting up with each other in love. And there it is. That's the secret. That's the secret of relations in Christ, in the church. Paul has just now given us the secret of how to avoid division, to promote unity, to care about one another. This is the kind of love that throws a blanket over the sins of others. Not in order to hide them, not, not to cover up their sin, not to excuse their sin. This is the kind of love that restricts the knowledge of their sin to as few as possible. This is agape love. This is not self-love of eros or the reciprocal love of phileo. This is the love that can't be conquered or overcome. This is the kind of love that a mother or a father usually under normal, healthy circumstances, has for their children. It, it, it doesn't mean that you pretend like there's no problems or difficulties or issues, but you try to cover them and protect them as you grow and learn from them. This is the kind of love that doesn't simply tolerate one another, but reaches out to one another. And you remember Peter starts off as this rough, impatient, quick-tempered person. You'll remember that John and, and 
Peter and all the rest of them and the apostles, you'll remember that when they're experiencing these deep difficulties and the apostles say to Jesus, you want us to rain down fire from heaven and smoke them like a cheap cigar? And Jesus says, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Paul, or excuse me, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, show respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Do you know why he can write those words? Because he's been changed. Just like some of you have been changed. Maybe not as much as you'd hope you had changed. But God's working. He's changing you. And you know what's even more important than that? Is your willingness to say, I, I want to be different. I want to change. I want my life to be different. And when you pray that prayer and you ask that, you're asking for these things. And number five, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in verse three. That's the fifth quality or the characteristic. And, and this is the charge or the command, the commitment to unity. Endeavoring to make every means make every effort. It means exhaust all the options. It means to try and figure out a way to pursue unity. And it can also mean endeavoring can mean do this quickly. Make haste. Don't put it off. There's a sense of urgency. There's no room for rivalry or hatred. This call is a call to focus on our commitment to one another in Christ. The bond of peace is what keeps us together. We're to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. We're to be peacemakers, not peace fakers. Peacemakers. A peacemaker can make peace. How? Because their hearts are filled with peace. How? Because it's a heart of humility. It's a heart of meekness. It's a heart of gentleness. It's a heart of patience. It's a heart committed to putting up with one another. And I know what some of you are thinking right at this moment. Because you're me and I'm you. I can't do this. I'm not good at this. I'm really bad at this. And so am I. I so much want to be different. I want to be different. A peacemaker can make peace because their hearts are full of peace. And think about the four things that we've already talked about. So, do you see your brothers and sisters fighting? Make peace. Are you fighting? Make peace. Do it quickly. Peacemakers tell the truth. The prophet Ezekiel warned about those who say, you know, everything's fine. Everything's fine. 
the Lord talked about the prophets who said, time out, everything's fine. All of the stuff that Ezekiel's been telling you, it's not going to happen. He says, he warns about the people who say, everything's fine and it's not fine. He describes these people like plaster over cracked walls. In other words, these are, this is a kind of a superficial filling of the cracks. And so when a person says, I need you to make peace, and you go, everything's fine. No, I, I need you to make up with your husband or your wife. No, we're fine. I need you to make up with your children. No, we're fine. I need you to make up with that person. We're, we're fine. But you're really not fine. But a peacemaker risks pain because anyone who attempts peace either socially or relationally or biblically risks misunderstanding and failure. Have you ever wanted to make a relationship right and you tried and you said, they said, I don't want to talk about it. Go away. Leave me alone. No, you, you know what? We need, we need to fix this. No, I'm not ready to do that. Or we're fine. Or why would you even bring this up? The peacemaker wants to be honest. The peacemaker is willing even to experience a little more pain in order for peace to take place. Paul told the Romans in Romans 14, 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, unquote. If possible, he said, if possible, he said, live at peace with everyone. Aren't you glad he said if possible? Because sometimes it doesn't even seem possible. He says, if it's possible, so much as it depends upon you. But this is the problem. Forgiveness and reconciliation doesn't take just one person. It takes two people. It only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled and then to live at peace. Sometimes it's not possible. But the peacemaker is humble, gentle, patient, loving, because peacemakers are filled with peace. They're willing to fight for peace. They're willing to experience pain for peace. If you've ever been in a fight and you refuse to pursue peace, then you understand just how big of a problem it is. J. Dwight Pentecost tells the story of a church split that was so serious, each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the other of the church's assets. They completely disregarded the biblical mandate to not take your brothers to court. And when they went to court, the civil courts threw out their case because they said, we lack jurisdiction. And so they tried to resolve their conflict through a church mediation group. And during the course of the proceedings, they discovered that the conflict began at all places in a church dinner when an elder received a small portion of ham, smaller than the portion of a child sitting next to him. And the root and the bitter battle was over a piece of pork, but that piece of pork revealed a genuine lack of humility, a lack of gentleness, a lack of patience, and a lack of peace, and it split the church. And so what are the components of unity? Look what he says. 
There's one body and one spirit as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Proof positive that Paul was from the South. Actually, he gives seven unities to be kept. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. He illustrates the components. These are the elements that make unity possible. He's not talking about unity at all costs, and he's not talking about an artificial unity based on something that isn't true. Some Bible teachers believe that this portion of scripture may have been an early hymn. It may have been a song that the Christians sang in the early church to remind them of the basis of their unity. Some have suggested that this was an early confessional or, or a doxology. My pastor used to always sing, um, praise God from whom all things flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So he, he, he thinks that this might have been sung, that it was a confession or a doxology, but it was deeply rooted in Trinitarian theology. Each of these facts, these essentials, these elements, these unities are linked to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit. This is not a future hope, but a present reality. This isn't something that's going to take place in the future. We're one body now, united, Jew, Gentile, male, female, free, slave. We are a single, universal, harmonious fellowship of believers in a Catholic church. And by Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic or or Greek Orthodox, I mean universal in the, in the very literal meaning of the word. One spirit, one Holy Spirit who gives life and dwells every believer. The Holy Spirit serves as the organic basis for our unity. The Holy Spirit is the uniting principle. Do you remember when you were a kid and you learned that there's two principles, P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, and P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L, and that it was pal. And so when you have a pal, you know you're making reference to a person. I'm using the word principle here to mean pal. The Holy Spirit is the person who unites us together. The Holy Spirit is the uniting person that supplies the foundation for all that we are in Christ. Paul says, just as you were called... In one hope of your calling. That is, all Christians share the hope of forgiveness of sin. Of reconciliation to the Father in Christ. We share a common hope of a resurrection from the dead and eternal life. Remember Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. I'm sure that some of you at some point must think, I'm going to be dead one day. And Jesus says, at that moment, you will never be more alive. I'm the resurrection of life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, 
yet shall he live. The Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. People go, well, what's the worst that could happen? I could die. No, it's the best thing that could happen. We share a common salvation. We share a common future. When Jesus returns, he saves us. He rescues us by his blood. We belong to him only. Jesus is the exclusive path to the Father, John 10.10, John 14.6. We're members of his body. Jesus alone is the head of the church. Jesus is the very reason we come together. One faith, a singular salvation that's found only in Christ. When a person says to you, what faith are you? It, they usually mean Catholic or Protestant, Methodist or this or that or this or that. But when the Bible speaks of it, he's talking about the singular faith, the singular confidence of a salvation that's found only in Jesus. We have one confidence, one salvation in Christ. Our faith is anchored in Christ, in the gospel. Our shared belief in Christ is supposed to destroy the barriers that separate us by language and culture and color. We are a singular race, a human race. We're one nation in Christ. We have one status. We have one citizenship. Even though we do have dual citizenship, we are members of the earth, but our real citizenship is in heaven. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We publicly proclaim our identity with Christ. One baptism. We have one baptism. This is the one outward sign that reveals the true spiritual condition of the inside. We publicly proclaim our identity in Christ. And the transformation that has taken place, one God, one Father, the Father of all. We're God's children. We have one Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the creator. He's the Lord of all who believe. And the Father isn't some distant deity. He's not some spirit in the sky. Like I learned in the 60s. Do you remember the spirit in the sky? I'm going up to the spirit in the sky. That's where I'm going to go when I die. When I die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go to the place past the best. No, you're not. You don't get to go to heaven unless you have a right relationship with Christ. Francis Schaeffer called the God, he called him the God who is there. We live in a culture and a society that say, I wonder if he's there. Yes, he's there. He's the father of our Lord Jesus. In Walbert and Zuck's Bible Knowledge Commentary, they say the one body of believers is vitalized by one spirit. So all believers have one hope. The body is united to its one Lord, Christ, by each member's one act of faith. And its identity with him is depicted by baptism. One God, the Father, is supreme over all, operative over all, resides in all, unquote. So the components or the elements include one body, the fellowship of believers in church. One spirit, the Holy Spirit who activates the fellowship. One hope, the glorious future given to everyone who knows and loves Jesus. One Lord. Jesus, to whom we all belong. One faith, our singular commitment to Christ. One baptism, the singular sign of entry into the church. One God who is the Father. And then he keeps us. 
in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, throughout all of eternity. So this begs yet another question. Well, are we still different? Well, we have different personalities. We have different preferences. You like coffee. I like tea. You like vanilla ice cream. I like pistachio. We have preferences. We have temperaments. We have gifts. We have backgrounds. We have convictions. We have scars. And your scars might be different from my scars. But we share a common paternity. Our Father. A common fraternity. Our Lord. A common Maternity, a shared birth by the Holy Spirit. Our unity is eternal and unbreakable. So the unity of the church is indestructible. And this is going to scare you, and I hope it does. It's as indestructible as the Godhead. It's no more possible to split the church in reality than it is to split the Godhead. And this is the scary part. You and I are inseparable. It's pretty frightening, isn't it? This is great for Halloween. This is the scariest thing that I have to preach this month. No wonder we're supposed to get along. No wonder we're supposed to get along. So why are there so many obvious and external differences? Why is it that some churches won't even talk to each other? For the same reason you won't. For the same reason that you fight with your parents, you fight with your children, you fight with your family, you fight with your friends. Because you lack humility and meekness and patience. And refuse to put up with each other in love. Instead we let pride and selfishness and foolishness and hate and bitter divisions. We fail to pursue peace in the bond of love. We forget the first three chapters of Ephesians. We forget that we're created by God, that we're loved by God, that we're saved by God. And that he's called us to walk worthy, to live worthy, to walk in love and in unity. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you that the moment that you become dissatisfied and you say, I really want this. I want to walk worthy of the calling which I've been called. I want loneliness of mind, gentleness of heart, long-suffering, bearing with one another. I'm going to make every effort to have unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I want to be a peacemaker, not a peace faker 
or a troublemaker. So the next time someone tries to make trouble for you, you go, peacemaker, peace faker, troublemaker, and then go, God, help me. <laughs> help me, Lord. I, I need to be different. I want to be different. Heavenly Father, in order to do what Paul has asked us to do, in order to do what he's pleading with us to do, he's given us instruction and he's given us a way to do exactly what he wants us to do. But in moments of honesty and integrity, we understand that we fall short. That Lord, instead of meekness and lowliness of mind, we exalt ourselves. Instead of gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another, we find a way to go away and then to stay away. Lord, help us. Help us. Help us to be men and women who will live worthy of the calling that we've been entrusted with, the salvation that's been imparted to us, the grace that's been given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.